0: Um, my next speaker really needs no introduction. Um, Scott Gordon is a, uh, is a teacher at the Shasta College um, for business. He is a former dean of the business and technology group there. He's been president of Fair Mormon for 19 years. Um, he has nine grandchildren from five children. He served as a bishop, ward mission leader, uh, last year he was Ward Mission Leader, Seminary Instructor, and I understand he was the third counselor in the Relief Society presidency. <laughs> so without further ado, turn the time over to Scott Gordon. Thank you, John. Well, <clears throat> hmm, got to get my voice working now. So today, I am going to address a book or publication known as The Letter to a CES Director. It's some, or it's also called The CES Letter, My Search for Answers to My Mormon Doubts. Hereafter, as I move forward, I'm going to call it The CES Letter, The Letter, or The Book. Additionally, I may refer to the author of The CES Letter as simply The Author. It is with some hesitation that I address this topic. As I know, it is a subject that is near and dear to many people's hearts. And, like politics, it has become a polarizing document. I hope that no one who sees, hears, or reads my comments believes that I have anything but love and respect for those who struggle. Those who struggle with issues of remaining in the church or leaving. It's a difficult thing. And many families... Sorry. Many families have been broken up, and many people have had their lives um, disrupted, and forgive my tears, but I was... uh, reminded of being in Scotland and having a young 19-year-old man stand up with tears in his eyes and saying how much he wanted to serve a mission his entire life until he read that letter, and so he'd left the church. So this next line I was going to say doesn't make any sense anymore. (laughs) It says, if I try to interject some humor from time to time, which I'm not doing, obviously, which both my wife and daughter tell me I shouldn't do, Uh, know that it isn't directed at any individual or anything. It's just my way of trying to deal with things. Of course, the best answer for finding the truth is in the Book of Mormon. Moroni, chapter 10, verse 5, which says, And by the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. Obtaining an answer from God is the ultimate way to discern truth. So why should we talk about this CES letter at all? Why not just direct people to read and pray and go to church? Well, this is also answered in the scriptures, where the Lord says in DNC and 1097, And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom, Yea, seek ye out of the best book's words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study, and also by faith. We all have times when, for whatever reason, our faith wavers. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's trials, sometimes it's pride, and sometimes it's prosperity. There's many different reasons, those are not the reasons, there's many different reasons as there are different people. During those times, we are vulnerable to other influences, and just like in Alma 32 where the seed of faith can be planted and grow, a seed of doubt can likewise be planted and grow. The CES letter is an attempt to create an alternate narrative for the truth claims of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I watched the early creation of this letter as the, in 2013, that's how long it's been around, as the author scoured the internet crowdsourcing other like-minded people to contribute questions that they would like to see answered. It has been published online in book fashion and translated into Spanish, Portuguese, Swedish, Japanese, German, and they're working on Finnish and many other languages. It has become a proselyting tool in attempts to draw people away from the church and it has been very successful. Some in the former Latter-day Saint community have posted pictures of writing the link of the documents into Book of Mormons and churches, and also in Marriott hotels, and in hymn books, and in other locations. In April 2014, it was spam emailed to hundreds of students at LDS Business College in Salt Lake City, It even showed up on Spider-Man in a Marvel comic. Pass-along cards have been created to spread the news. Many have gone to great lengths to spread the gospel of the CES letter. While it isn't the first publication to take a long list of old criticisms of the Church and present it as new, it has become the one with the most unified backing behind it. I hear from people on a regular basis they've been asked to read this book from their spouse, child, or friend. And I must say that some disaffected members seem to be much more excited about passing out this book than some faithful members seem to be in passing out copies of the Book of Mormon. So what is it? The CES letter has 13 chapters, and a conclusion at the end, it has 77 official questions but it's really kind of hard to count the questions, because many of the questions branch off into side questions, and many of the questions are repeat. The book challenges the reader to have answers to a long list of questions right now. But most normal people won't have a list of answers at their fingertips that counter the list of claims. It's simply overwhelming. Each one of the questions requires research and time that most people simply don't have. At least I know I don't have. But this is a one hour talk. It's actually less than an hour. I can't possibly cover the entire subject. So I'm going to refer you to other resources on the CES letter listed on this PowerPoint slide. Obviously we have the Fair Mormon website, we have Brian Hale's website, debunking-cesletter.com, bamboozled by the CES letter by Mike Ash, a faithful reply by Jim Bennett, and uh, the. you can find other things there. Much ink has been spent on replying to this book. In preparing preparing for this talk, I reread all of those responses. I also reread the response given by the author of the CES letter regarding the criticisms of his letter. So what does the letter itself say? What is it the people read that bring them out of the church? And to get to the heart of the matter, Is the CES letter proof that The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is false? Or is it simply propaganda? The theme of the book is that the church has lied to you about its history, about Joseph Smith as a translator and prophet, so there's no way it can be true. It adds on to this that people who have looked at these issues and given answers for them, like Dan Peterson and others, are simply unofficial apologists, and can't be, their opinions can't be trusted. As I've said, I cannot cover the contents of the entire book unless in this one talk, so I'm only going to focus on chapter one. In chapter one, there are 11 claims or 11 statements. As I quote from the book, I'll be calling each claim etc. So if you see 0.1, you know it's going to be directly from the book. So here we go. The first three claims, or the first three points in the letter, are all interrelated. They all center around the translation process of Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. Why are King James Version errors in the Book of Mormon? Why are italicized words in the Book of Mormon? Why doesn't the Book of Mormon follow the Joseph Smith Translation? While reading the entire book, I noticed that the translation concerns come up repeatedly. So this seems to be a really big deal for the author. The first claim, using the words from the CES letter, is, What are 1769 King James Version Edition errors doing in the Book of Mormon? A purported ancient text errors which are unique to the 1769 edition that Joseph Smith owned. That's all the book says. There's no support, no explanation, no examples given in the book for this assertion. Luckily, there is a footnote, and the footnote links you back to the author's website. And the impression I get from reading the link to webpage is the Book of Mormon must exactly match the earliest known documents, the words are directly from God. So if they deviate from what that should be, it proves that Joseph Smith isn't re- is really isn't a, pro- a true prophet. The problem with this position is that translation between languages doesn't work that way. Also linked to on that page is this chart of what the Book of Mormon gets wrong. The chart help- helpfully gives, quote, a correct translation column. Well, as I look at the first four on the chart, two of them have incorrect scriptural references, probably typos, and one of them incorrectly quotes the Book of Mormon. It then states the translation is identical to the King James Version, which it's not, and gives us the alleged correct translation, which ironically is exactly what the Book of Mormon says. Given this is the very first argument, we aren't off to a very good start. In spite of that, I would like to test that first claim anyway, using the other example that kind of worked. This comes from Isaiah 2.16 and 2 Nephi 2.16. The alleged mistake in the Book of Mormon verse is the word pictures. The so-called correct translation should be image or ships or craft. So my first question: which one? Which one is the correct one? Uh, Forging ahead, I went to www.biblestudytools.com, an excellent resource, by the way, and I looked at several versions of the Bible. And I get the American Standard Version, which says, Imagery. The Bible in Basic English says, Fair Boats. The Darby says, Works of Art. The English Standard says, Beautiful Craft. And the Young's Literal Translation says, All the Desirable Pictures. There seems to be disagreement. I was talking to our real Bible scholar, Matthew Bowman, earlier, and he says the good versions will put what they think the translation is and they'll put a footnote and then down below you can read the alternative possibilities because in making translations, some things simply aren't clear. But looking at it, I think we can all agree that imagery and works of art are pretty much the same concept as pictures. And I think it's an interesting variation to talk about beautiful boats. I mean, I could see that being a pretty picture, I guess. But I will freely admit that I am not a Bible scholar. But pictures seems to be an acceptable translation anyway. But this doesn't fit the CES letter, Correct Translation Theory. These differences in translation are often referred to as variations. Who is to say which variation is correct unless you have a direct pipeline to God? And that seems to be exactly the argument that's being made. If Joseph Smith is a prophet, he did have a direct pipeline to God. And therefore, he would have used the translation that I think is correct. My response is while the translation variations are interesting, we don't have enough information to use as evidence that Joseph Smith was or was not a prophet. This unfamiliarity with moving between languages continues in point two. When King James translators were translating the King James Version Bible between 1604 and 1611, they would occasionally put in their own words into the text to make English more readable. We know exactly what those words are because they're italicized in the King James Version Bible. What are those Seventeenth-century italicized words doing in the Book of Mormon, word for word. What does this say about the Book of Mormon being an ancient record? That's all from the CES letter. Let me try and explain the concept. If I want to express the idea that I want to go for a walk in German, I would say, ich möchte spazieren gehen. It takes four words. But to translate this presents some challenges. The first challenge is the word "möchte," with that O and the two dots over it. Not only do we not have that letter, we don't have that word. There is no single word that translates as "möchte." The closest single word would be want, but in German there's a different word for that, which is wollen, which is conjugated as will. So that doesn't really work. The best translation in English would be would like, which is two words. But our problems are not yet over. We can't say, I want walk, go, or even, I would like walk, go. That would make us sound like a two-year-old. To make work in English, you have to change that four-word sentence from German and translate it into an eight-word sentence, I would like to go for a walk. In the King James Version, they simply took those extra four words and italicized them to let you know that those words are there to help it read smoothly into English. So to go back to that original question, what are these 17th century italicized words doing in the Book of Mormon word for word? My response is, because it's English. It shouldn't surprise us the Book of Mormon included these words too, since they are necessary for the translation to be readable. What does it say about the Book of Mormon being an ancient record? My response? Nothing at all. It's a translation. And that brings us to point three. The Book of Mormon, from the CES letter, the Book of Mormon includes mistranslated biblical passages that were later changed in the Joseph Smith translation in the Bible. These Book of Mormon verses should match the inspired Joseph Smith translation version instead of the incorrect King James version that Joseph later found fixed. Well, what is the Joseph Smith translation? Is it a more accurate translation of ancient records, as the CES letter seems to say? In the 1997 church ensign, it says, the prophet did not translate the Bible in the traditional sense of the word, that is, go back to the earliest Hebrew and Greek manuscripts to make a new rendering into English. Rather, he went through the biblical text of the King James Version and made inspired corrections, revisions, and additions to the biblical text. Then, from the church history topics, I know our church history people in the back are glad I use that, right? Because that's what they're there for. It says, Joseph Smith also made many smaller changes that improved grammar, modernized language, corrected points of doctrine, or alleviated inconsistencies. As he worked on these changes, He appears, in many instances, to have consulted, respected commentaries by Biblical scholars, studying them out in his mind as part of the revelatory process. In D&C 124 it says, Behold, I am God, and have spoken it. These commandments are of me, and were given to my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come to an understanding. Then in D&C 128:18, referring to the biblical text in Malachi, Joseph Smith wrote, "I might have rendered a plainer translation of this, but it is sufficiently plain to suit my purpose as it stands." So, with that in mind, let's look at the evidence the CES letter uses to make its point. In the letter, the author shows 3 Nephi 13:25 through 27. Matthew 6.25-27 and Matthew 6.25-27 from the Joseph Smith Translation. Then he makes the following claim. Christ's Sermon on the Mount in the Bible and the Book of Mormon are identical, but Joseph Smith later corrected the Bible. In doing so, he also contradicted the same identical Sermon on the Mount passage in the Book of Mormon. Well, there are two problems with this. The first problem is the two verses are not identical. So here is Matthew 6:25 through 27. This is the one I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, etc. This is from the King James Version. Here is the one in the letter to his CES director in the Book of Mormon where it says, therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, etc. But even though the author of the letter claims they are identical, You can see the verses are not identical because of the ellipses. That dot, dot, dot that comes at the beginning of verse 25. That dot, dot, dot means words are missing. And as you can see, then the CES letter argues that the Joseph Smith translation, Joseph, quote, contradicted the same identical Sermon of the Mount passages in the Book of Mormon. As evidence, he shows Matthew 6, 25 through 27 from the Joseph Smith Translation. This presents the second problem. The CES letter gives us chapter 6, verses 25 through 27, because that is where the passage is found in the King James Version and in the Book of Mormon, as well. But the fact that the verse numbers are the same in the Book of Mormon is simply a coincidence. Remember, there was no verse numbering in the original edition of the Book of Mormon. This same passage is is found in the Joseph Smith translation, but not in verses 25 through 27. They're found in verses 28 through 31. And by comparing verses 25 through 27 in all three texts, he makes it appear that Joseph Smith has changed the passage in the Joseph Smith translation. He's actually comparing the wrong verses. Now I want to state, I wouldn't have a problem if Joseph Smith had changed the passages. We can look at Jeremiah chapter 36 for an example of that. That's what prophets do. They add to and expound on the word of God. But in this case, it's simply an incorrect comparison. His next three points in the letter have to do with DNA in the Book of Mormon, anachronisms, and archeology. span In the interest of time, unfortunately, I'm going to have to refer you back to many of the articles on the Fair Mormon website and also to Matt Roper's discussion on anachronisms at this conference on Wednesday. But I would like to make just a few quick points on each of these. Well, the first one, DNA. We know that Vikings were in America. There is Native American DNA in Iceland, and we have the historical records. But as of yet, as far as I know, we have found no Viking DNA among Native Americans. Leading geneticists who studies these things say that DNA neither proves nor disproves the Book of Mormon. Regarding anachronisms in archaeology, anachronisms are often artifacts of translation, as translators are attempting to convey thoughts and ideas to the understanding of their contemporaries using words and items that are familiar to them. The Bible contains anachronisms such as the use of candles instead of the oil lamps that were common in ancient times. Additionally, some things appear to be anachronisms because archaeologists have not found physical evidence as yet of items that are mentioned, but that continues to change as the field expands. The CES letter goes on to complain of the lack of Book of Mormon archaeology around the current Book of Hill Cumorah area in upstate New York. Many Book of Mormon scholars have a much larger geographical idea of where Book of Mormon peoples might have lived. This includes the great civilizations of the Americas and in Mesoamerica. Certainly, we haven't found a freeway exit sign to Zarahemla. But we have made some exciting discoveries in the Old World and the New World alike. And this takes us to point seven. Many Book of Mormon names and places are strikingly similar to many local names and places of the region where Joseph Smith lived. I had a conversation in the hallway just the other day where someone said, this is the one that broke their shelf. This is the one that, they had a family member who said that. So, the Book of Mormon contains approximately 345 names, I might be off by one or two, 86 of which are related to geographic locations. In 1983, a man named Vernal Hawley brought up the idea that Joseph Smith got the place names in the Book of Mormon from his surrounding area. He then showed 28 names on what he claims to be a Book of Mormon map. Hawley's map was pretty much dismissed because many of the communities did not exist at the time of Joseph Smith. It appears Hawley had looked at a modern map. The letter to a CES director author recognizing that some of the names did not make any sense, paired that list down to about 20 names. So here is the map which he claims is the proposed map constructed from internal comparisons in the Book of Mormon. As I look at the map, my first thought is, no it isn't. It isn't constructed from internal comparisons in the Book of Mormon. Nothing's in the right place from internal directions. This is not a Book of Mormon map. This is a map of upstate New York and Pennsylvania with some Book of Mormon names pasted in on locations that start with the same few letters. It doesn't even include Zarahemla or Bountiful. Well, when confronted with this, the author of the letter justified on his website, well, the point of the map is not whether or not it matches exactly. The point is that it matches mostly. There are a striking number of names around the location where Joseph Smith grew up, similar versions of which are in the Book of Mormon. Well, I disagree that the geography matches at all, but in spite of that, let's take a look at the names. The following seven names over the next two slides didn't exist in 1830. The first city is Alma. Alma, West Virginia was the city that Hawley placed on his original map but it was called Ripley until it was changed to be named after a woman born in 1884. The author of the letter recognized this was a weak argument and he suggested another community named Alma, but both Alma, Ohio and Alma, New York also didn't exist until after 1830. Looking at the next cities, Antioch and Boaz, they also didn't exist in 1830 and Boaz can be found in the Bible. As for the next city, Jerusalem, Ohio, it also didn't exist. Now, the author of the letter argues that while Jerusalem wasn't an incorporated town, the area did have a house in 1825, one house. The second house wasn't built until 1838, and it didn't become a town until 1893. The town is 395 miles away from Joseph Smith and Palmyra. If Joseph Smith were copying names, I would think that Jerusalem in the Bible might be a closer match and a better source. The name Shiloh can also be found in the Bible. The community of Shiloh was in Pennsylvania wasn't named until 1907. And I would like to thank the people with the York County Historical Society, the York College of Pennsylvania, and Penn State, who all helped me with that date. Research often takes more than a Google cut and paste. Noah Lake, it's a modern reservoir with a concrete dam. And Sodom, Ohio didn't exist in 1830, and that's a biblical name as well. So, that takes me to my next list. Next, list is the places that possibly could have been used, but I really find it unlikely. We have Ripple Lake in Ontario, 324 miles away, which is allegedly the source for the name ripley Ancombe. Ripple Lake is a tiny lake surrounded by other tiny lakes, hundreds of other tiny lakes. It's about 700 meters long and about 200 meters wide. Next, we have Jacobsburg, which uses the biblical name Jacob in common with Jacob Aguth. It wasn't a town yet, but it did have a post office, a tavern, and two stores. This tiny hamlet was also 373 miles away. The other four names here here, and here are equally as unlikely, with them being a long distance away, not being incorporated towns, but I put them on my list of maybe because they did have a post office and a post stop. And then that brings up the next category. The next six names on the next two slides are slides that could possibly be claimed to be hits because they were in existence with some proximity, maybe an issue, but you'll have to decide for yourself. Of these six names, the Bible might be a better source for the name Jordan, so I would take that one off the list. Now I'm going to share the next slide, so this is the first three, and here's the next four, only I would argue it's the next three because if you'll notice, the last two are simply a repeat. You're just not noticed to repeat, because in his list, is in a different order. So, this whole map theory of Joseph copying local names argument isn't very strong with, honestly, only about five names. And that's only if you believe things like Antrim is the source of the name Antum, and Moravian Town is the source of the name Morianton. Even if we decide to include the unlikely locations from our maybe list, like Ripple Lake, after we take out the clear biblical references, the most we can get is 10 names. That leaves only 76 Book of Mormon names to go. The CES letter helpfully gives us a possible source for two more of those names from 8,000 miles away and tells us how Joseph Smith learned those names. Quoting from the CES letter, off the eastern coast of Mozambique in Africa is an island country called Comoros. Prior to its French occupation in 1841, the islands were known by its Arabic name, Camora. There is an 1808 map of Africa that refers to these islands as Camora. The CES letter goes on to assert, The largest city and capital of Comoros, formerly Comora, Moroni, Camora and settlement Moroni, I'm quoting this, if it looks, the crammer looks weird, I'm just quoting it, were names in pirate and treasure hunting stories involving Captain William Kidd, a pirate and treasure hunter, which many 19th century New Englanders, especially treasure hunters, were familiar with. Okay, there are problems with this statement. The first being that Moroni did not become the capital of Camora until 1876. It was, at most, a tiny village that wasn't mentioned on any contemporary gazetteers or map indexes I could find, but for the sake of discussion, we will accept the general premise and move on. What does this have to do with Joseph Smith? The CES letter quotes from Pomeroy Tucker in a book critical of Mormonism written in 1867, 23 years after the death of Joseph Smith. Quote, Joseph had learned to read comprehensively, reading works of fiction and records of criminality, such, for instance, as will be classed with the dime novels of the present day. The stories of Stephen Burroughs and Captain Kidd and the like presented the highest charms for his expanding mental perceptions." Well, that quote pretty much contradicts what everyone that knew Joseph Smith said about him. Even his own mother said he didn't read much, but let's go with it. And let me try to summarize the argument. First point, Kamora and Moroni are Arabic names from an island near Madagascar. These names were repeated in stories involving Captain William Kidd. A lot of people in the area read Captain Kidd's stories. Pomeroy Tucker somehow remembers 40 or 50 years later that Joseph Smith read these stories of Captain Kidd. Therefore, that's where Joseph Smith got the name Kamora and Moroni for the Book of Mormon. The biggest problem with this argument is that Captain Kidd's stories don't mention Camorra or Moroni at all. Even Pomeroy Tucker doesn't claim that. And if there is a reference I've missed, it means Joseph Smith managed to find something that a 21st century researcher with Google couldn't find. In his letters, Kidd himself refers to the nearby islands of Madagascar, Johanna, and Mahala, but he says nothing of Camorra or Moroni. And Moroni in the Book of Mormon doesn't seem much like a pirate story with swashbucklers, romance, treasure, and fighting ships. And that takes us to the next three claims. The original source for the Book of Mormon. One of the arguments made is that the Book of Mormon was cribbed, stolen, or plagiarized from another book. These arguments are popular because the people who knew Joseph Smith also believed there was no way he could have written the Book of Mormon. Well, the first problem we have with this argument is that three different books are given for the original source. To me, this says that no argument of any of these is particularly compelling. But as we get into detail, you may understand why. Let's talk about the first one, The View of the Hebrews. Point eight. Quote, there was a book published in 1823, Vermont, entitled View of the Hebrews. Well, the Book of Mormon, the view of the Hebrews contains around 57,000 words, and the Book of Mormon contains around 268,000 words. But the letter to a CES director goes on to fill three and a half pages of parallels between these two books showing how similar these books are. It starts with the location of the publication, Vermont, Poultney, Rutland County, It then gives the location for the Book of Mormon publication. Vermont, Sharon, Windsor County. And then we're given the really helpful note tying the books together. It says, note, Windsor County is adjacent to Rutland County. This could be the smoking gun publishing in a neighboring county. But, no. Joseph Smith moved from Sharon, Vermont when he was 10 years old. The Book of Mormon was published in Palmyra, New York by E.B. Grandin. You can visit the publishing house when you visit Palmyra. It's quite a tourist attraction. But I want to give the benefit of the doubt here. Let's give the benefit of the doubt. Assume an innocent mistake. I know I make those, so let's move on to the list of parallels. And here are the first four that are listed. Both books talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. Both books talk about the scattering of Israel. Both books talk about the restoration of the 10 tribes and both books talks about Hebrews leaving the old world for the new world. What's the problem? Well, the view of the Hebrews begins with a discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then it goes on to complain about all the evils of the Roman leaders. The Book of Mormon talks about the destruction of Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonians at 600 BC when the Israelites were captured. It says nothing about Romans. The view of the Hebrews talks about the ten lost tribes crossing over to America via the Bering Strait and being restored here as the Native Americans. And the Book of Mormon talks about a boat and doesn't really get into the ten tribes that much. There really isn't a match. Going down the entire list, point by point, you will find that the books aren't even remotely alike, except in the most superficial manner. There is no storyline in the view of the Hebrews. There are no prophets in view of the Hebrews, as Ethan Smith, a devout Protestant, didn't believe in non-biblical prophets. There is no new scripture in the view of the Hebrews, as Ethan Smith believed the Bible to be a closed canon. The books have a completely different purpose. This book appears to be a historical commentary, while the Book of Mormon is inviting us to come unto Christ. Many of the early saints learned about this book when Joseph Smith himself quoted from the book in 1842 in the church newspaper. The Times and Seasons. If he had plagiarized from that book, I doubt he would try to bring it to everyone's attention. This would be, in the words of one reviewer, that Joseph Smith was a brilliant con man and a blithering idiot theory. (laughs) You can find the CES letter online with a simple Google search. search. I invite you all to read it. The CES letter author seems to be hoping that you won't. Because once you do, you will immediately recognize how nonsensical this claim is. Which brings us to the next point, point number nine. From the CES letter we read, The Late War Between the United States and Great Britain. This book was an 1819 textbook written for New York State school children. The book depicted the events of the war in 1812, and was specifically written in a Jacobean English style to imitate the King James Bible we heard a comment on that earlier today from Lynn Wilson. But what does this have to do with Book of Mormon plagiarism? In October of 2013, two researchers presented at an ex-Mormon foundation meeting in Salt Lake City that this book could be the source of the Book of Mormon. The researchers put the book into a computer and had the computer find parallel phrases between the two books. Much has been written on why this method doesn't really work, because computers can't read context. We see this in the 75 parallels that come from the copyright page, but let's look at it anyway. Um, First of all, the late war is nothing like the Book of Mormon. This is a textbook on the War of 1812. The storyline is different. The characters are different. There are no common themes. There is no religion in the text. And in the Book of Mormon, I don't read about any attempts to invade Canada, engage in long naval blockades, or burn down the American White House. But the CES letter, they're good enough to give us a list of parallels. To give you a flavor of these parallels, let me give you just two examples. This is one example. Objects made partly of brass and partly of iron and were cunningly contrived with curious works likened to a clock as it were a large ball. Is this the Liahona? No, it's a torpedo. <laughs> How about the rod of iron? So there's no more sentence there. That's all it is. That's the words it found. Rod of iron. Is it to guide us to the tree of life, perhaps? No. Nope it's a weapon. It says, then we'll rule over them with a rod of iron, which actually is a biblical quote. The rest of the so-called parallels are equally as bad, although I will admit that both books mention elephants and both books mention boats, but using a Google search for books with elephants and boats, the book The Life of Horatio, Lord Viscount Nelson, and His Glorious Achievements under the British Flag also comes up. Yet so far, no one brings that up as a possible source of the Book of Mormon. I might be the first. The author of the CES letter seems to be hoping that you won't read this book either. And of course you won't. Who has time? We as readers generally trust what authors write in books. We trust that they have done the research for us. But in this case, it would be a mistake to do so. There is one more book that is brought up as a source. Let's see if this one holds up better than the last two. The CES letter says in point 10, another fascinating book published in 1809, the first book of Napoleon. Quote, the following is a side-by-side comparison of selected phrases the Book of Mormon is known for. From the beginning portion of the Book of Mormon with the same order in the beginning portion of the first book of Napoleon, note, these are not direct paragraphs." I look at these lines and think, huh, that's kind of an odd thing to say. Why is he saying the same order and these are not direct paragraphs? Let's take a look. Here is the paragraph from the first book of Napoleon that's given in the CES letter. Condemn not the writing, an account, the first book of Napoleon, Upon the face of the earth, it came to pass, the land, their inheritances, etc., etc. Here is the paragraph given from the Book of Mormon. Condemn up the writing, an account, the first book of Nephi, upon the face of the earth, it came to pass, this land is inheritance, etc., etc., etc. Well, the first problem is the first line with the Book of Mormon quote and the word writing. The phrase from this comes from the title page where it says condemn not the things of God. It has nothing to do with writing. To continue the paragraph, you have to go back to the top of the page to pick up the words an account, then skip down to 1 Nephi 1.11 for the next phrase, and then turn back to 1 Nephi 1.5 for the next one, then skip forward to 1 Nephi 2.11 for the next phrase, and on it goes, cherry-picking a few words here and a few words there. It takes three chapters plus the title page to construct this false, fake paragraph. And what about the first paragraph from the first book of Napoleon? It takes 25 pages to create that paragraph, those red dots where the words came from. No wonder the author of the CES letter said, quote, these are not direct paragraphs. Because even he seemed, seemingly felt uncomfortable with it. And he is also wrong about the phrase with the same order, they are not all in the same order. Can anyone believe, really, that Joseph Smith copied from the first book of Napoleon to create the Book of Mormon? If it was such an obvious copy, one has to ask, why someone felt the need to painstakingly create these two fictitious paragraphs. The reality is that here again we have two books that have nothing in common. Where is the great French cavalry charge in the Book of Mormon? And where is the testimony of Christ in the first book of Napoleon? The first book of Napoleon, the late war, the view of the Hebrews, None of these have anything to do with what is written in the Book of Mormon. So why should they be in the CES letter with descriptor words such as stunning, fascinating, I was floored, and how phenomenally unlikely it is that so many common rare phrases and themes could be found between these books. I will let you decide. There is one more claim in chapter one of the CES letter, which says, the Book of Mormon taught and still teaches a Trinitarian view of the Godhead. My response is, no, it doesn't. We know as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that to get a full understanding of a topic, we should read all of the various related verses. For example, if you look at Alma 1144, or 3 Nephi 2810, the passages clearly 10 and 11. passages clearly identify the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost as distinct beings, but remind us they are one in purpose and one God. It is a consistent teaching of Joseph Smith and the Church. So let's review these 11 claims. In points one, two and three, we covered translating Scripture, italicized words and the Joseph Smith translation. The CES letter appears to show a lack of understanding of translating between languages of what the Joseph Smith Translation is and a pattern of poor and misleading research used to promote his narrative. In points four, five, and six, the letter covers DNA, anachronisms, and archaeology. In these three points, the pattern of unsubstantiated or poorly researched claims continues. Point seven is that the Book of Mormon names come from the local area and Captain Kidd novels. This idea is a big stretch. And additionally, Captain Kidd novels don't mention any Book of Mormon names. Point eight, nine, and ten, the view of the Hebrews, the late war, and the book of Napoleon are clearly not the source of the Book of Mormon. And finally, point eleven, the Book of Mormon teaches a Trinitarian view of the Godhead. My response is, If you believe that, you are in the minority. The general membership of the church, the church leadership, as well as all the Christian churches that attack us for being non-Trinitarian, certainly don't believe the Book of Mormon teaches that. What is left out from this discussion in the CES letter are all of the internal evidences, plus the external discoveries that support it as an ancient document, such as the ancient spice trail that matches the travels of Lehi in the Old World, the land of Jershon meaning the land of our inheritance. Ramiemptum, meaning a high-standing place. Evidence of chiasmus, psalms, and other Hebraisms throughout the Book of Mormon, particularly in Second Nephi chapter 4 and Alma 36, but in many other places as well. I can go on and on. And if you don't know about these things, you can find them on the Fair Mormon website, or the Interpreter website, or Book of Mormon Central website. Going back to my initial question, Is the CES letter proof or propaganda? Based on the first chapter alone, I believe the proof claim is weak at best. His pattern of poorly supported research and misleading facts used in these first 11 points make me skeptical about his claims in the remainder of the book. Given his track record, no claim can be taken at face value. Each must be investigated individually and thoroughly. There is a quote on the back of the CES letter from President J. Reuben Clark, which says, if we have the truth, no harm can come from the investigation. If we have not the truth, it ought to be harmed. I know this was meant to be talking about The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we've just spent time investigating the points from the first chapter in the CES letter, and the claim of truth in that chapter cannot be supported. If this is the best that can be given, it reinforces my testimony of the Book of Mormon. I am grateful to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I appreciate that I can not only receive a spiritual witness of the Book of Mormon, but that the sacred book can also withstand intellectual criticisms. Thank you. How final is fair mormon 's response to the letter 's claims? How often are you finding new evidence to disprove it? Well, the problem is as people criticize the letter, he changes it <laughs> so any, and then so we have a fair mormon 's response then we have then we have the authors debunking fair mormon 's response and then we have Fair Mormon change things and debunking fair mormon 's response the debunking i mean it really gets bad. Um, Certainly, we try and update it from time to time. It probably could use another refresh, but, we, uh, but we're working on that now. Uh, it's, uh, so we're, we're continually upgrading it. I will also refer you to the uh, debunking-CES letter website that Brian Hales does and then the other two books, the bamboozled book and the response book by, by Bennett. Who is funding cesletter.org? Yeah, this is interesting. The author, this is his full-time job now. Uh, this is what he does, he has the, a foundation. People donate to the foundation. He takes a salary from there. Uh, it's, As I said, it's really become a unifying rallying point of many in the, the former LDS community. Even on Reddit on uh, Wednesday, someone is saying, look, Scott Gordon's talking on the CES letter. Well, no Mormon apologist has been able to touch it, so it's really, there's nothing he can say. Um, so it's still, it's, it's still a, a major, major uh, tool, and it's because everyone's rallied around it. It really is still having an impact. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have had a son, neighbor, friend, daughter, relative who has been impacted by this letter? Raise of hand. Yeah, look at that. That's crazy. So, has he been effective? Yes, I give kudos for how effective this, this letter has been. He's really, it's been very effective. Is it right? We'll have to decide. For those of us unfamiliar with the CES letter, please give me more information on the author of the CES letter. It's one author or more. Well, there's one author, his name is Jeremy Reynolds. I didn't mention in my talk, but that's his name but he did what's called crowdsourcing which means he went to the internet and he uh, he asked the others in the former LDS community what questions do you have and so he collected those and put them as his questions he also um, just recently the maps section he said he actually said online i think this section is kind of weak you think but um, but he said i think i'm going to take it out of my next book and he had some people online say, no, no, that was the one that broke my shelf. That was the one that got me out. And so he decided to leave it in there, in his most recent one. Do we have more? Can you comment on some possible anachronisms in the Book of Mormon? So, no, but if you want to, I would really check with Matt Roper. He did an absolutely fabulous job on anachronisms, and uh, he, he did it in, on Wednesday. And if you can't find Matt, then you can purchase the streaming from Fair Mormon and watch his talk. <laughs> Will your talk be on YouTube? Uh, if you think it should be, uh, I guess. I am a college student, and one of those, in one of my classes, I'm learning about logical fallacies. Upon learning about these, I realized that many of them are employed by critics of the church. Why would critics rely so heavily on logical fallacies if they are so sure the church is false? That's exactly my question. When you have a great answer, please come see me and we'll have you speak at the next conference. (laughs) What is your view of B.H. Roberts' analysis of the Book of Mormon and view of the Hebrews, uh, and other concerns about the historicity of the Book of Mormon? Um, So the the B.H. Roberts thing, he actually most critics leave out the first page. He has a cover page, and then he has his his criticism of where he tries to compare. And in his cover page, he, he writes a letter to the First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, and says, like, okay, here is view of the Hebrews, and here are how critics might use it. And he explicitly says, these are not my views, these are just how critics will be using it. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing, so if you go and you say, hey, he didn't say it exactly right, it's just a paraphrase. Um, in, But, uh, That section gets left out a lot. You know, people say like, oh, B.H. Roberts lost his testimony in the Book of Mormon. No, he didn't. I do the same thing. I'll be talking to John here, and and we'll say like, well, this critic says this, and then we'll talk about it. And that's what B.H. Roberts was doing in that case. Um, So I don't believe B.H. Roberts ever lost his his testimony in the historicity of the Book of Mormon. I really believe that he never did. That's it. Okay. thank you very much.